Well, as we prepare our time to worship the Lord through the study of His Word, would you bow again with me in a word of prayer? Father, we approach this time with trust, with sobriety in our hearts, minds, as we think about You, that we would be serious in our own hearts and lives as You are serious about Your Word. And not one part of it, not one jot, not one tittle, not one minuscule aspect of it will ever pass away. All will come to pass just as you have said it will, for it reflects your very nature of who you are. And so we pray that that impact would be upon our lives and our hearts, that the reality of who you are, the fear of you, would motivate us to love you as we ought and to follow you in these ways. So teach us this morning from your word what you would have us learn. May the implications of these truths impact our lives as we work them out in the way in which you are orchestrating the circumstances of our life. May we live them out and remember just who it is we serve. All to your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you take your Bibles and open them with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. We are continuing to see this morning what we have seen in the past in our study, the living gospel who is Jesus Christ, the good news concerning Jesus Christ, the news about mankind and their sinfulness before God has been made a way in which it can be rectified before a holy God, and that is through the living gospel, Jesus Christ. And yet, Jesus Christ, the living gospel, is completely incompatible with any other gospel. You may notice in the bulletin I've entitled this series of messages that we had last week, this week, and again next week, under the simple title, complete change. That is really the reality of what Jesus said to Levi in Matthew chapter or in Luke chapter 5 when he said, "Follow me." Within those very words is the reality of obedience to Jesus Christ based upon a change that Jesus Christ brings to a life, a complete change in one's life. That is what the true gospel does in the lives of those who believe and follow Jesus Christ as Savior. They are completely changed. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And therefore the life I live now, I live by faith in Jesus Christ, this one who died for me, who delivered himself up for me, I live by faith in him. And therefore, we are to live changed lives. This is what Jesus was saying when he called Levi and when he called any of us to believe. But I've also given this section a longer title. If you've ever read any of the Puritan books, you know they're small titles are just a little 
window into what they're really wanting to deal with. And so I've given it somewhat of a Puritan title as well. And it is this, the divine or the gospel of divine achievement is incompatible with the gospel of human achievement. The gospel of divine achievement is completely incompatible with the gospel of human achievement. These are two gospels that we see happening in our world and yet they are completely incompatible. And that is really what this section is about. That is what it exposes. That is to say that you cannot have a true and saving relationship with God and think in any kind of way that your human efforts, whether they be religious efforts or just humanistic efforts at your own goodness, that your efforts save you or in any way enhance the supposed salvation that you believe you have for your soul. Your human efforts in any kind of way, whether they are called religious or not, cannot save your soul and they cannot enhance what you think you may have through them for your soul. The gospel of Jesus Christ is completely incompatible with the religion of human achievement. That is the truth that is continued in Luke's words here in the first 11 verses of chapter 6. And it surrounds specifically the rules concerning Sabbath living. The living according to or keeping of the Sabbath rules. Luke chapter 6 And verses 1 through 5 is where we'll spend our time this morning. Verses 6 through 11 is where we'll go once again next Lord's Day. And we will see once again, yet from a different angle, this incompatibility of the living gospel with the gospel of human achievement. Now, as we begin this, we need to remember that Jesus Christ, as he has begun his ministry, has quickly come upon opposition against himself and opposition against his ministry. In, in, in previous times in our study already, we have seen this. There has been antagonism against Jesus Christ. We saw it for the first time. You might just notice by way of review back in chapter 5 and verse 17, when Jesus was teaching. Jesus had had been teaching. He goes into the synagogue. He is teaching. And in chapter 5, verse 17, there are Pharisees there. They are watching him. They are interacting with the reality of Jesus' teaching. And some friends of this man, who is either a paraplegic or a quadriplegic, we do not know, but he certainly could not walk, so his legs were paralyzed at least carry this man to Jesus because they believe in Jesus. We know that because in verse 20, he says, and seeing their faith, the plural pronoun there means more than one of them, not only the man on the bed, but some of his friends who lowered him down through the ceiling, believed upon Jesus. And the outworking of that faith was proven as they bring their friend to Jesus and Jesus says to their friend, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus has now made a bold and blatant statement concerning his deity. 
that He is in fact God in their midst. Why do we say that? Because the Pharisees were angry about that in verse 21. They were saying He is speaking blasphemies. In other words, He is attaching to man, i.e. Himself, those things of which only God can do, i.e. God is the only one who can forgive sins. That's exactly what they say. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they are exactly right. Jesus is now showing them just who He is. He is declaring His divine authority. He has already declared His authority over many, many things, over the demons as He's cast out demons, over disease as He heals people without even touching them, just speaks a word at times and people are healed. He has the power over all of these things. And now He declares that He can forgive sins. And they say, how can you do this? You're Only God does that. And so Jesus begins to confront their their issue in their mind. And Jesus shows by virtue of a physical healing, He heals this paralyzed man, something that could be seen, something that could be easily verified on a human realm in the physical world. He shows them that He has the divine authority and divine power to forgive sins, which is something that cannot be seen in the physical world, except through the outworking of the one who is changed. And so Jesus says to the man, get up off your bed, rise, take your stretcher, and go home. Jesus proves to them He has the authority to forgive sins. That's what they could not see, because He completely and and immediately changes a life with a word And the man gets up and walks away. There's no doubt that what Jesus said about the very things they could not see, i.e. the forgiveness of sins, they could not doubt anymore about the power of Jesus because Jesus in a moment shows them something that they could easily verify that He has the power to do. So because of that, opposition begins to rear its ugly head against Jesus. Jesus is claiming to be God. He is, in fact, God in the flesh. But those who would have nothing to do with the religion of divine achievement, the religion of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the living gospel, Jesus Christ alone, those who have nothing to do with God, even though they say they know God, and His righteousness, who is Jesus Christ, those begin to oppose Christ. And then again, in verse 30 of chapter 5, Jesus is eating and being with those who He knew had sin. Those who had come to Him because they were, in fact, just like Matthew, sinners. They were those who knew the wickedness of their own heart. And yet, here are the Pharisees once again questioning, questioning Him. Why would you do that? Why? Because they would never be with those kinds of people. They would never associate themselves being those who were working out their own life as if they were righteous. They would never be with people like that. Why? Because they saw themselves as better than those people. I do what I need to. I fast and I tithe and I give to the poor. Do all of these kinds of things. I would, I would not hang out with those people who steal from other people, even though they were just like them in their hearts. 
And so because Christ came to save sinners and not to save the self-proclaimed righteous, as he said in verse 32, verse 33 says they, or you, you understand that they are, their anger is growing. And then in verse 33 and following, they say to him, why aren't you following the traditions of men? Why aren't you following that? Why don't you fast like we fast? And of course, we saw that last week. Opposition arose against him because of the absolute incompatibility of Jesus Christ with their formal, cold, self-religious or self-righteous religion. And we made this point that Jesus Christ cannot be attached to a system of religion. You cannot take Jesus Christ and add him to your system of religion. You cannot take Jesus Christ and try to contain him within your supposed human religion of works. He cannot be part of those system of rules in order that by your own efforts and attaching Jesus with your own efforts that you can be holy before God. Why? Because the religion of divine achievement is completely incompatible with the religion of human achievement. You cannot sew it on the old and you cannot contain it within the old. Why? Because one saves and one damns. One makes alive, the other remains in death. One cures the inevitable eternal problem of man, the sin that man has in the heart, the other leaves man in their sin. One overcomes death, the other one only masquerades as life in a costume of eternal death. This has always been the reality before God. Every religion outside of true Christianity, which is the religion of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, so that God alone is glorified. Every other religion other than true Christianity is a works religion. All of which make some attempt at becoming righteous through human effort alone or effort plus Jesus Christ. The only religion that offers real and complete salvation from the penalty of sin is true biblical Christianity. True biblical Christianity is the religion in which Jesus offers to Matthew in verse 27, come and follow me. It is a religion that is by faith, whereby a lost sinner comes into a relationship with the only one who can forgive sin, who is God Himself, and the only one who through that forgiveness will save you from eternal judgment. That is Jesus Christ. The only way. There is no other way. So you only have two religions in the world. You have the religion of divine achievement and the religion of human achievement. There are no others. There are no others. It doesn't matter what you might call it. It doesn't matter if you call it Buddhism. It doesn't matter if you call it Hinduism. It doesn't matter if you call it humanism or Catholicism or Mormonism or mysticism or any other ism that you can come up with in your mind. It doesn't matter if it's witchcraft or shamanism or any other false religion whereby salvation is a work of man 
all of them are incompatible with Jesus Christ. They are all false, they are all damning, and they will all lead those who are in them to eternal hell. No matter how good they feel in them. No matter how satisfied they feel in them. This then, this morning, becomes the fourth incident where the religion of human achievement comes against Jesus. And it comes because of His refusal to conform to their religious system's Sabbath regulations. Now mark that down like that in your mind. It is their religious system's Sabbath regulations. And in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, you have two successive incidents. Both are dealing with the same basic issue. Humanly imposed regulations for religious gain. And here it is, relig- it is regulations concerning the Sabbath. Sabbath. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus is accused Really, by means of accusing the disciples, he is accused of violating the Sabbath law by allowing his disciples to do what is not lawful to do according to the rules of human achievement. And in verses 6 through 11, he himself is accused directly of open disregard for humanly imposed Sabbath rules. So the first incident is here, found for us in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And that's where I want us to spend our time today. Notice what it says. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about that on a certain Sabbath, he was passing through some grain fields, and his disciples were picking and eating the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priest alone, and gave it to his companion. And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, as we've already noticed, the disdain for Jesus is growing. It didn't take very long. He's a pretty effective preacher, we might say. It doesn't take long for people to hate Him. And And the animosity against him is no longer in hiding. It is now out in the open. The religion of human achievement is being exposed for all that it is. And its true heart is being seen. So much so, in fact, that in just a few short time to pass, in just a few short uh, years, if you will, the leaders are going to begin to plot the death of Jesus Christ only to actually send him to the cross. They're in fact going to even accuse him of being the devil himself. How far must your blindness be, how dark must your blindness be to attribute 
the only one who can save to be the devil himself. How oxymoronic could anything ever be than that? The Lord of glory, the shining light of God in the face of mankind through Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, now being accused of being the father of lies, Satan himself. That's how far the religion of human achievement will take you. So as Jesus Christ increasingly exposes the foolishness of the man-made religious system and its inability to save, the leaders of that religion ratchet up their attacks. The more the more Jesus points out the internal sinfulness and the emptiness of their own system of human achievement, the more hardened they become against Him, the more furious their outrage gets. And very often, as we see even here in Luke chapter 6, the flashpoint is surrounding, very often when you read through the Gospels, it's typically surrounding something to do with the Sabbath. This seemed to be their their place in which they had greatest control over the people. Greatest control over those who were part of it. The area in which they had expanded the law to meet their very own self-desires in which they could point out to others, hey, listen, you're not keeping the Sabbath. And I believe Jesus deliberately and righteously and providentially through His ministry deliberately did many of the miracles on the Sabbath simply to expose the futility and the hypocrisy of man-made religion. Now think about it. Think about God doing that. It's an act of God's grace to do that. It is an act of God's grace that Jesus Christ in His ministry would, would expose the very religious day, the very day in which the people were were meant to be worshiping God in the whole day that by God's grace He would orchestrate life in which Jesus would come and do many of the miracles that He did and many of the teaching that He did through the Sabbath and on the Sabbath. Exposing for them and for all to see just the hypocrisy at which their human religion, where it was taking them. Now, for our own purposes this morning, just for ease of us thinking through this passage, I've just broken it up under three headings. Easy headings. The act, verse 1. The accusation, verse 2. The answer, verse 3. You see, you don't have to be some brilliant guy to do Bible study and get an outline in your head. That's pretty clear here. There's an act going on, there's an accusation that happens, and there's an answer that Jesus gives. This is simply to help us think through this. So let's begin then with the act. Verse 1. came about that on a certain Sabbath, He was passing through some grain fields and His disciples were picking and eating the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. You need to notice, just as you begin here, when Luke says, now it came about. That's how the New American Standard translates it. Some of yours might have a different way of saying that, but that's an introductory phrase, simply letting us know not that it's just the next thing in the life of the ministry of Jesus Christ, but rather 
that this is the kind of thing that was always happening in the life of Jesus Christ. This is another one of those moments. In other words, there is rarely any relief in the ministry of Jesus Christ. It is always dogging upon Him. It didn't matter what Jesus did. It didn't matter where Jesus went. It doesn't matter how He is ministering. Someone from the religion of human achievement was there dogging His steps. Always upon Him. Hounding His tracks like a, like a buzzing black fly that we get here in New England irritating him, waiting to strike with some kind of accusation against him as if he was being ungodly. So this is just another example of what always happened to Jesus. And what reminds us of the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 and verse 9, right? If they hated me, they're going to hate you. They they, want to kill me, they're going to want to kill you. This is what true gospel ministry is like. This is what it's like as a Christian in the world. People don't like it. They don't like God. They don't like what God requires of them. They don't like the fact that they are sinful and that God exposes that sin. They want to get rid of anything that is light. Therefore, when you live as a creature of light, when you live out the gospel of Jesus Christ before men, you will be disliked. And so Jesus is going on from one place to another with his followers, and he is being disliked constantly. And here, his followers are doing a simple thing. They are picking and eating the heads of grain as they are proceeding through the grain fields. Now we need to just pause for a moment and just interject some understanding about the Sabbath. It says it was a certain Sabbath. The Pharisees had added so many different things to to the rules for the Sabbath. They even included other Sabbaths that weren't required that you had to do. And whether this was a, a first Sabbath or a second Sabbath, we're not sure. But Luke says on a certain Sabbath. That's the content. That's the intent of what he is saying. It's not necessarily the Sabbath that was orchestrated and given by God, as we will see, but it was just a Sabbath, one considered by at least the Pharisees to be a Sabbath. The English word Sabbath is the transliteration of the Hebrew word Shabbat. Shabbat. You can go to Israel today. You're not going to hear a Jew say, unless they're speaking English, that it is Sabbath day. They're going to say it is Shabbat. It is the day of Sabbath, but they are speaking the Hebrew. And basically meaning, Shabbat just basically means complete rest. Complete rest. That's the idea of Shabbat or Sabbath. This is what it meant. That was its intent. Now, Shabbat did not mean necessarily complete inactivity in your life. That's not what complete rest meant. It didn't mean you have no activity whatsoever in your life, but rather that you had a complete day of rest that was set apart from all of the other days in which you would go about working and carrying on the actions and details of life. This was part of what God had instituted back in the garden when Adam sinned. Six days you will work, by the sweat of your brow you will work for your food, and on the seventh day God 
gave a day of rest. So God instituted this day back in Genesis chapter 2, actually, in verse 3, even before the fall, after God had spent six days creating the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 3, it says, God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it. That means He set it apart. He set it separate from the other days because in it He rested. He Sabbathed. He rested from all of His work which God had created and made. So here is God in His divine counsel and wisdom setting aside a day for His people as a memorial day of remembrance that would happen every seven days. So every seven days that go by, one of those days is the Sabbath day. The seventh day would be the Sabbath day. Day, a memorial day set aside by God. And in Exodus chapter 20, when God had given the law through Moses, God requires in the list of Ten Commandments that the Sabbath day be kept holy. Holy means set apart. That it be kept holy, that it be followed. But in the command of God in Exodus chapter 20, God does not mean and He does not intend to mean that you cease to exercise God-honoring virtues in your life. In other words, He does not mean that you just disengage from all of life, including those in which He might be honored by the activity that you are doing. Micah 6, verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So even on the Sabbath, those are good things to do. To be humble before God, to exercise justice, to to love mercy and kindness. Out of all of the Ten Commandments, only that one commandment, the Sabbath day, is strictly a ceremonial commandment, memorial commandment. In other words, out of all Ten Commandments, it is completely unique to the Old Testament Jewish people. All the other commandments deal with moral and spiritual requirements. Certainly within even the commandment of the Sabbath day, there were implications that were moral and spiritual implications, but all of the other commandments deal directly with moral and spiritual requirements that God's people must think about and must do. That's why you see all of the other nine commandments of the Ten Commandments repeated and expanded upon in the New Testament. The one commandment you do not see repeated and expanded upon, when it's particularly when it comes to the church age, is this commandment, the Sabbath commandment. It's never brought forward from the Old Testament. The Old Covenant, which is the Old Testament, is never brought forward from that to the New Covenant. It's never brought forward either by way of command It's never brought forward even by suggestion. Because it was not moral, it was not spiritual, it was ceremonial. When Jesus was on earth, guess what? It was still Old Testament times. He had not been crucified yet. He had not risen from the dead yet. The church had not begun yet. That's Acts chapter 2. So you read the New Testament, it is the New Testament in the New Covenant, and yet it's still... Old Testament times. So the New Testament church is yet to be established. 
And so the old covenant requirements are still in effect for the Jew. But it had been several hundred years that have passed since Moses was given the commands by God on Mount Sinai. And now that Jesus is on the scene. And the religious leaders had taken those Ten Commandments and morphed them and added to them all kinds of things that required the outworking of your life in order to say that you were a believer, one who was godly. And so they have placed into the religion of human achievement all kinds, hundreds of regulations, particularly hundreds of regulations that had to do with this very command of the Sabbath. And those new regulations went way beyond what God had taught, way beyond what God had implied by what He had taught. In fact, many were even a contradiction to what God had intended in His Sabbath law, particularly. For example, you can get the Jewish Talmud today, which is the book, the Jewish rabbi's book of religious traditions within the Judaism You can get that, and you will find there are 24 chapters within the Jewish tradition book called the Talmud just for Sabbath rules. 24 chapters. One says that no person can walk more than 3,000 feet from their house. You cannot walk more than 3,000 feet from your house unless unless you have food that is 3,000 feet or maybe a little more from your house, then you could walk more than 3,000 feet to get that food because the food is seen to be part of your house and therefore from where you got the food, you could walk another 3,000 feet because the food was to be seen as part of your house. Very convenient. Another one says if you place some kind of rope from house to house, across the street, or next to your neighbor, then that instituted that both of those dwellings became one home, and you could freely go between those houses and never violate the Sabbath rules. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you will notice in most of the towns, if not all of the towns who are Orthodox Jews, there are wires that go from house to house to house, places like that, even to the temple, which allow you, as long as you're within that roped area, you're within a Sabbath day's walk. Now you could walk for hours and be within a Sabbath day's walk. Very convenient. So doing any work, if not according to Sabbath tradition, was a violation of the law, even if that meant that you had acted in a godly way. And so according to the law, putting off a handful of grain or taking a handful of grain in your hand, like it says here in verse 1, picking the grain and eating it, and particularly rubbing it in your hands was a violation of the Sabbath rules. Now you could pick grain from some grain stalks if you were starving, but that was something that was hard and difficult to determine. So most of the time you would just be in violation of the law if you were doing this. So the Sabbath had become in and of itself an effort to keep. Just fulfilling the law of God in His day of memorial, this setting it aside for the time when we just worship God, became effort rather than the rest that God had intended for His people. 
And any wonder that Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All of this stuff, all of this human achievement religion is a bunch of nonsense. Come to me, believe in me, I'll give you rest from all of that. The ungodly cold religion of human achievement was wearisome. Never ended. So here is Jesus passing through the grain field. Certainly must have been close to some town, right? A Sabbath day's walk was 3,000 feet. And so they're passing through. Some of his disciples are obviously hungry, picking the heads of grain. We'd know from that it must have been around March or April. That's when the grain typically ripens in that area of the globe. And they're satisfying their hunger. By the way, just a side note here. Don't think in our minds, we can't, we can't get in our minds, well, that wasn't very nice to the guy who owned the field who had planted the grain. I mean, aren't they taking his grain? Aren't they stealing from the owner who planted the field? They weren't. Why? Because Deuteronomy 23 and verse 25 said it was lawful to feed yourself from your neighbor's field as long as you didn't cut the field down, as long as you didn't harvest it, you just fed yourself a little bit, that was okay. You could only eat what you needed. So the disciples weren't working as reapers. They're not there cutting things down with some sickle in their hand. They're just satisfying a need. They're acting in a good manner, both socially and spiritually. But tradition said that you're rubbing grain in your hands, then that's work, that's threshing the wheat, and you cannot do that because that means you're violating the Sabbath law. So they are violators, according to the Pharisees, and even worse, Jesus himself is a violator because Jesus isn't stopping them from doing it. So this is the act. This is the perpetuating act that is happening here in Luke chapter 6 and verse 1. So they make their accusation. So this is the accusation. Verse 2, but some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? That word lawful means what is not permitted. What is not permitted. It's a simple objection to what Jesus and the disciples are doing. Why are they working on the Sabbath? And Jesus, you let them do that. Mark's gospel tells us that they were specifically speaking about the disciples rather than Jesus himself. And I find it rather strange, as you think about all this, why the Pharisees were there in the first place. It's the Sabbath. Why are they out and about? seems to me that they're sometimes had given themselves what we give even police officers, even in our own time, police officers from time to time get to violate the law that they're enforcing. Right? If they have to speed to catch you as a speeder, they violate the speeding law so that they can catch and enforce the speeding law. This is the Pharisees. They're out violating the Sabbath law in order that they might catch Jesus, quote-unquote, violating the Sabbath law. In other words, they had elevated the traditions of themselves, the traditions that they had created, the traditions of men, to the place where it's equal with God's Word. 
even though tradition was never legitimate as Jewish law, ever. It was simply the observance of the laws over hundreds of years that being misunderstood gave a status in the minds of the people that this is exactly what God said. So God's Word was only honored in name, but not in practice. They read God's Word. They went to the Old Testament. They knew the law of God by at least words. But in practice, it was far from them. That's what we see today. So much of that going on today, even in evangelicalism, where we say, we speak loudly about the Scriptures, we speak loudly about the Word of God as being the authoritative Word of God, we, we have it with us, we read it, and yet we close it and never do anything with it. Or we change it to say what's comfortable to us, therefore we just go on living the way we want to. This is what the Pharisees are doing. They're accusing Jesus and his followers of violating not the Word of God. You're not violating the Word of God. What they held higher than the Word of God was their own traditions, their own man-made burdensome efforts. They're saying, Jesus, you're violating traditions. You're violating what is tradition. And the traditions were only laying more work upon the people completely against what God had intended, completely against His Word. And so you have the act, you have the accusation. And here's third, then, the answer. Jesus so patiently, yet so poignantly, gives it. Verses 3 through 5, And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone. And he gave it to his companions. We'll just stop right there for now. Jesus, in answering the Pharisees, is laying his finger right on the real trouble. Jesus is putting his finger right where the trouble lies. They have been reading too much of the traditions of men and not enough of the divine law of God. They had been spending way too much time in what they said was right rather than in what God said was right. And Jesus points his accusers to an incident in their own scriptures. And then he gives them the underlying principle of the Sabbath. What did David do in his need? That's the essence of the question. Jesus begins with, with a, a sarcastic answer. Although not born out of sinfulness in the heart, sometimes our sarcasm is just that. It's just born out of sinfulness in the heart. But Jesus answers with some sarcasm. Have you never read? That's a stinging indictment upon the teachers of Israel. Have you not read? I mean, these guys were self-proclaimed experts of the Scriptures. And Jesus is saying, have you never read? Is like Jesus saying, don't you know what the Bible teaches? He 
You say, why do you say that? Because all of the commandments that God gave were given to promote a heart of love toward God and a love toward others. That's the essence and intent of the Ten Commandments that God gave. The first three promote greater love toward God. They promote loving God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole body, your whole strength, all of you sacrificially honoring God with all that you are. And the seven others promote love toward others. Your fellow man, loving your neighbor as yourself. But the religion of human achievement knows nothing of that. Knows nothing of loving God. Knows nothing of loving others out of a genuine heart for the love for God. No, the religion of human achievement is trapped in its own system of achieved righteousness. It's trapped in its own system of keeping rules in tempting to manufacture love through some system of traditions, through some system of keeping rules. So here Jesus is pointing to one of the greatest heroes of Judaism, David himself. And he's pointing at that to show that the Sabbath was given by God for God's glory and for man's welfare. It was never given as a means to gain righteousness. was never given to restrict the expression of compassion for others through some deed that you might do yourself to serve others as an act of mercy toward them. It was never intended to restrict that. Micah 6.8 was clear on that. Show mercy. Jesus, here in verses 3 and 4, is referring to 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21, David is fleeing from King Saul. David had already been set apart by God to be the rightful king of Israel. Saul is the king. David is fleeing from Saul. Saul wants to kill him. He's fleeing with some of his men, and David comes upon the tabernacle, which is located in the town of Nob. And he's hungry, and he asks for food. And the priest gives him the consecrated bread. It says here, it's the showbread. That's the original word for it. It's the bread of presence. It was called that because it represented the presence of God among the 12 tribes of Israel. It was called the showbread because of that. And there would be 12 loaves there on the table representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And each Sabbath day, so every seven days, those loaves would be replaced by fresh 12 loaves of bread. It is said that those loaves contain six pounds of flour each. That's a big loaf of bread. My kind of place. Twelve tribes of Israel being represented. So you take the old loaves, you replace them with the new loaves, and the law said that only the priest could eat the consecrated bread. They would be eating the old loaves. That's how God provided part of their sustenance. They didn't have an inheritance. They didn't have part of the land. The uh, Levites didn't have an inheritance in the land. The other tribes would give part of what they gave. They gave to the priest so that priests would be sustained. Well, this was part of God's provision. But on the occasion when David came to the, to the temple, or came to the, to the tabernacle, the temple wasn't built yet, the priest made an exception to that rule. The priest gave it to David. 
The priest said, here you go. And David, because of a need and out of an act of mercy and love, David, therefore, in and of himself, even passed it down to the men who were with him. And they ate. And so Jesus brings this story up out of 1 Samuel, which the Pharisees should have known about, and he assumes that the Pharisees agree with him as to David's actions. They would never accuse David of doing something wrong. They would never say that David did something wrong in what he did here. And Jesus is saying, listen guys, God wasn't offended at that. You're offended at us because the disciples were grabbing grain and doing it in there to fulfill a need in themselves, and you're angry that they're fulfilling this need? Listen, God wasn't offended when David did that. The priest nor David were disciplined by God for it. In other words, the Lord God Himself was willing to, to express mercy and compassion even on the Sabbath, even even though he had instated the Sabbath law for the greater need of mercy to David and his men. You meet a need. So here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, if God, the Father, was willing to do that for the welfare of his people, he surely permits then purposeless, cold, man-made religious traditions to be set aside for the good of men. Certainly if God could express mercy on the Sabbath that He established, certainly your traditions can be circumvented for the compassion of men. In other words, even if the divine ceremonial law wasn't intended to be absolute in its application, then neither should your tradition be, even if you want to keep that tradition. So what does Jesus say? The Sabbath was never intended to restrict deeds of love to mankind. Just because God said it's a day of rest, it didn't mean that you stop acting in love towards one another that you stop dealing in mercy to one another, that you stop being a believer in God and exercising your God-given outworking of love for God as you outwork that in your love for man. That was never intended in the Sabbath. It was never intended to restrict your service to God. Now think about that today, right? We, we as we'll see, the Sabbath law isn't for today. We are not Old Testament Christians. The church has been established. There is no Sabbath day. And yet here we are worshiping and it doesn't restrict our service to one another. In fact, we come together in order to serve one another. Why? Because that's what God intended. We are to serve one another. We're to love justice. We're to love mercy. We're to walk humbly before our God. Jesus said in a parallel account in Matthew 12, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. You see, the Pharisees are going around, oh, it's Sabbath day, we've got to sacrifice for God. We can't do anything. This is our task. God said the Sabbath day is a day for rest. We can't do anything. I know you want help. I know you've come to me for help, but it's the Sabbath day. I can't really do that. I'm sacrificing for God. God said, no, I want compassion more than sacrifice. Or I want, uh, yeah, compassion, not sacrifice. See, for them, sacrifice was a service that they did in order to earn God's provision of salvation. 
But God said, no, I want compassion over sacrifice. Serve. Serve me by serving one another. So the Sabbath under the old covenant was not a substitute for righteousness. It was not a substitute for compassion. The Sabbath was the Lord's special day under the old covenant whereby you could concentrate in an honor and memoriam to God as to what God has done for you as you serve God by serving one another. A faithful Jew should have been rightly concerned to follow God's example, his example of compassion, particularly through David's life. Have you not read? Don't you know what the Bible says? You see, but the religion of human achievement blinds your eyes to that because it's all about you. It's a man-centered religion. It's about me, what I can get. And if that means I can forgo serving you because it makes me righteous, then that's what I do. And Jesus' words just expose their hearts more. Notice, notice how Jesus substantiates the reality of that principle and truth. Jesus returns to the very thing he's been establishing all along. He returns to his own authority. Verse 5, he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's a, a title of Jesus' deity and humanity, the Son of Man. They would have been incredulous in their hearts that he would say this. Why? Because here is Jesus. He had previously claimed that he was the one who could forgive sin. They were blind to the reality that he could heal someone right before their eyes. They didn't care about that. He was a violator. And now here he is saying, listen, I'm the one who is Lord over the Sabbath. I'm greater than God's Sabbath. I'm the master of the Sabbath the Lord means. I'm the one who made the Sabbath. That's what he's saying. I'm above all the laws. I'm above all the institutions that were brought about to honor me. I'm above all those. You don't honor those things. You honor me through those things. Jesus says, I may be a man, but I am God. I'm more than man. I'm the incarnate son. I am the Messiah. You need to understand that. very one who with the Father and the Spirit instituted the Sabbath with all of its observances for man's benefit and for God's glory is now standing right in front of them to honor the Father by fulfilling the divine Sabbath law. Jesus came to fulfill the whole law. And here he is in their very presence fulfilling the divine law of God that he had instituted with the Godhead. Certainly he was violating their traditions. Certainly he was violating the rules that they had made for the Sabbath. He certainly was violating their Sabbath law, but he certainly was not violating the Sabbath law that he instituted through Moses. When we think about the Sabbath today, here's why it's not part of today. 
Here's why we don't celebrate the Sabbath today, because the Lord of the Sabbath is here. The Lord of the Sabbath is here. The shadow of his Sabbath was and is no longer needed, right? Divine rest is here. Hebrews says we are to enter that rest. We're to enter that rest. The New Testament doesn't require Sabbath observance. It allows freedom. We are for freedom set free in Christ, Paul said in Galatians. We've been saved unto freedom. We no longer are under the yoke of slavery to this effort of human righteousness. There is no Sabbath observance. Every day now is a day to honor God and serve one another. The only essential requirement is that it's for that purpose, glorifying God and loving your neighbor as yourself. From the days of the beginning of the church, the Lord's Day is now Sunday, the first day of the week. The first day of the week. That has been a special day. Why? Because it is the day in which Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That is the day. So we worship. We worship on Sunday, not a day of tradition, not a day imposed by tradition, brought about by the religion of human achievement. That's not what we worship. We worship on the Lord's day, the day the Lord rose from the dead. It's his day, a day instituted by, guess what? Divine achievement. He rose from the dead. The resurrection of our Savior. We worship and honor our Savior who has provided rest for all who will ever believe. Divine achievement. And so once again, here we are. The religion of human achievement completely incompatible with the religion of divine achievement. Now certainly, certainly there are people here who have been living their life as if they've been earning righteousness. Like the Pharisees. Been doing your life, living your life, editing your life and the behavior of your life in such a way that you, by means of how you have lived, because you're seemingly morally better than the person who you are looking at, that you believe God has an obligation, God has a very obligation to save you. That you would be right before God because God sees who you are. He sees your good works before Him. He he knows who you are. And after all, every road leads to God. And yet you reject Jesus Christ. You want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And if you know Jesus Christ at all, you have made a Jesus of your own making and you spell it with the same letters, but it isn't the Jesus of the Bible. 
It is a Jesus by way of tradition, a Jesus by way of attachment to the very works and efforts of your own life. And so here you are sitting, believing that you know God and you don't know him at all. Why? Because you believe that you have something to do with your salvation. That you can do something for your salvation. This is what Jesus is saying. I'm Lord. I'm Lord. You you only find rest in me. Me alone. By faith alone. For the glory of my Father alone. Just as my word declares alone. There is no other way. And so I entreat you, if you're here this day with that on your heart and mind, that you don't walk out of this place without talking to someone. Talk to me, talk to someone. Don't go out that door without knowing Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I trust that we have received what you have given to us that it would be upon our hearts as you intend that whatever may be confusing whatever may cause us to remain in our foolishness that that would be broken and shattered by the great truth that we have here Only one thing can penetrate the rock-hard heart of mankind, and that is your word. And therefore, we, like Paul, are not ashamed of the gospel, the living gospel of Jesus Christ, that if we will confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That's what your word tells us. That salvation never comes unless we acknowledge our sinfulness before you. Lord, open our eyes to those things. Cause us to repent. Help us to know that we stand before a holy God and that one day judgment's coming. May that judgment be ours in Christ Jesus who fully paid the penalty for sin. Lord, we'll thank you for the outcome of that either way, knowing that your mercy and grace is perfect, holy, just, righteous, never makes a mistake. We pray these things because of our Savior who paid his life for the life of men who would believe. In his name, amen.